You're listening to Israel National Radio. Welcome aboard flight 341. It's LL's new one-stop shop. Booking a vacation to Israel has never been easier. It's simple. The easy-to-use system allows you to book your flight to Israel and customize your travel plans with LL's travel partners in the tourist industry and realize huge savings in the process. And now, for Arutsheva listeners only, order a flight and hotel in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv through the Arutsheva site and get a free cell phone with 60 minutes to use absolutely free. Click on the banner on IsraelNationalRadio.com. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the Noahide Nations. My friends, it's so good to have you back here on the Noahide Nations show today. Uh, we always appreciate you taking the time out of, of your busy days to sit and listen to us for an hour. It's uh, absolutely fantastic, and we certainly hope that we are worthy of that time. So thanks for being with us. And uh, as I mentioned, my co-host, uh, uh, Prescott, is, is still dealing with some of Hashem's challenges that he's brought forth, and uh, we're continuing on with our, our guest host, uh, Mr. Doug Taylor. So let's bring Doug on in here. Uh, Doug, how you doing today? I'm well, Ray. Thanks. Excellent, excellent. Are uh, you ready for uh, another round? You bet. Okay. We'll have some fun. I think so. The last couple of shows have been uh, pretty fun already, and a lot of lessons learned and teachings going on here. So it's, it's really been a blessing that uh, you've been available to come in and share with us. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed the opportunity. Today, I know we're probably going to get into a number of different things, and I know that in preparation of the show, we kind of wanted to get back to our last discussion and, and kind of go over belief and, you know, I guess what it is and what it isn't and kind of touch on the subject of the authorities and the experts. And, you know, if, if we're not just supposed to believe other people, how do you deal with those so-called experts? So I think this is going to be a fabulous place to start uh, for today. And you know what, Doug? I think uh, there's going to wind up being enough material here to do you know, any number of shows. I mean, uh, this could really take off on us here. So we'll just try to keep the reins on it and see where we go. Well, that sounds good, Ray. I appreciate the opportunity to share the ideas with your uh, your listeners. We talked last time and the time before about the importance of, of asking questions and then we got into the, the subject of, well, what about belief and what role does that play, if any? And we really came down to understanding that belief really stops all discussion because you can't debate a belief. But we need to be able to ask questions and rationally understand something in order to fully make that knowledge part of us so that we know something rather than we just believe something. Right. But that does raise the interesting questions. Well, what about authorities or experts in a particular field? I mean, shouldn't we believe them? So we need to stop and, and look at that and lay that as a piece of the groundwork here. First of all, why would we believe an authority or an expert to begin with? Well, maybe they have more knowledge than us. I mean, this is true in most classroom situations. Uh, if I'm trying to learn mathematics and I'm just a beginner, and the teacher has an advanced mathematics degree, then it would seem re reasonable for me to listen to whatever the teacher has to say. But then, should I just trust them? 
you know, and trust everything they say. So how do we frame that? To give us a, a, a base, I'd suggest that we consider this. We talked a little bit about this on a previous show, but the question comes up of why does a five-year-old child not cross the street when the cars are coming by? And they do that because mom and dad said so. You know, don't cross the street when the cars are coming by, and the child obeys its parents. But we would really look askance at a 23-year-old person who gave the same answer to the question. Well, I don't cross the streets because my mommy told me not to. Uh, we'd sort of wonder, you know, what happened to you? You know, don't you have your own adult reasons for doing that? Right. <laughs> I mean, haven't you figured out the rational reason why you don't cross the street? <laughs> it's not because mommy told me so, you know. It's because I don't want to get smushed. Well, in the areas of, of learning and learning about Torah and learning about uh, various fields of study, we could take that same principle that we use around, you know, kids and mom and dad, and we could extrapolate that. And we could say, all right, I might accept a known authority or an expert temporarily until I get enough knowledge in order to be able to test their statements and establish the knowledge as my own. So, for example, my, my professional training is an, as an actuary. Um, and if I were questioned on why I used a particular mathematical formula in a particular situation, uh, it would be really ridiculous of me to answer, well, because my college professor told me so. <laughs> I mean, I would be expected to be able to explain the mathematical basis for my use of that formula and why it was appropriate in that particular situation. So likewise, I'd suggest that we are all ultimately responsible for our own knowledge and the decisions that we make. We cannot push off that responsibility on someone else. You know, Flip Wilson. That's a, a fabulous statement. In fact, I was just speaking with somebody last night, kind of having a, a, a conversation along these lines, and I actually, and I couldn't find it uh, immediately in the text, but Hashem tells Moshe, who wants to literally take the place of the nation of Israel, and Hashem just flat out said, no. Every man dies for his own sins which means we individually are responsible. Yep. So you make an excellent, excellent point right here. And, and you may remember the uh, the comic Flip Wilson years ago. Yes, I he, do. He had a classic line, <laughs> The devil made me buy that dress. <laughs> you know, it's I some, remember. It's somebody else's responsibility. <laughs> I'm not responsible. And yet that just... That just doesn't cut it, and we don't accept that in virtually any area of our lives, you know, in, in business or with our children or uh, in an educational institution or whatever. Uh, we expect people to be responsible. And so, you know, we're responsible for testing ideas about a creator and testing ideas about Torah and our understanding of it. Uh, I'd submit not just blindly accepting someone else. Right. Now... I do have to decide who I'm going to trust as an expert and how far I want to go to confirm that knowledge. Um, for example, if I have a skin problem and I need to go see a dermatologist, I don't think I need to learn everything that the dermatologist knows in order to follow his advice. 
but I am responsible for researching at least enough to choose a dermatologist that knows what he or she is doing, because right. otherwise I'm the one that's going to get the consequences. Uh, so we go to, uh, you know, in our study of Torah, we go to certain rabbis uh, that we have come to trust, and we say, okay, help me understand this. What should I do in that situation, or what about this? And hopefully what our attitude is, is to both get the knowledge and learn from them, but also test the answers that they're giving with questions. So that if we don't understand, we say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense to me because of this. Help me understand why. And if they give me a clear understanding, then I'm, uh, I'm good to go. But I shouldn't just necessarily accept it because they say it. Except in cases where I'm a, you know, I'm very much a beginner and I've got to accept a little bit of stuff initially in order to build my base so that I have a, uh, a rational sense of how to question. Uh, right. So, so I just wanted to get that off, uh, from our discussion last time. You know, I, I may choose an authority and follow their advice without fully understanding everything that they know. Uh, but in a lot of areas, I choose an expert and I accept what they're telling me temporarily while I'm learning it. And ultimately, my goal should be to develop enough knowledge so I can test the expert's conclusions and uh, prove them for myself. And then they become mine. Then it's not that I'm following what so-and-so said or whatever. It's that I've proved that idea for myself and now it belongs to me. Uh, and I can own it and know it. I don't have to rely on believing it. Well, and here again, now we go back to the whole questioning thing. Even in having the expert in front of you, if you're not asking questions, you may not be learning all there is to to know, number one. Then number two, you're certainly not learning anything that you want to know. Yes. But be, Because you, ha- you have to ask the questions. That's part of this whole homework theory. Uh, and it's not even a theory. I mean, when you study, you study the text and you absorb that as best you can, and then you go in and you ask the the expert, we'll call him professor, uh, a rabbi, whoever. If you don't ask the questions, the text that you have read can only go so far. Yes. I mean, you can only discern so deeply. So you, please, you, you have to ask ask the questions. Can't be shy. Yep, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So with that, I thought it would be fun to go back to one of the points we made in our first discussion uh, when I was sharing with you that first class I had with Rabbi Moskowitz on Proverbs 10.1. Right, right, right. And one of the questions that he asked me was where the verse says, a wise son makes a glad father. He said, well, what's wise? And can you define that succinctly? And here is what I learned uh, on that from that class, which has carried over and been a huge principle uh, that's affected my life ever since. And that is that wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. Wisdom is the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. I don't know that I could overstate the importance of that definition. We're considered wise if we make decisions based on the actual potential outcomes of the situation or consequences rather than my emotions. 
And consequences are usually in the future, and emotions are in the present. So it's very easy to get caught up in what I want right now and leave off or ignore, well, what's going to happen in the future if I do that thing? And just a, kind of a, a note on that subject, it's very interesting when, I, when I've uh, had conversations with people, particularly those of the, um, the Christian faith, and uh, we'll be, you know, kind of going back and forth, uh, uh, questioning and discussing, and then all of a sudden they'll be uh, emotional. And at that moment, as soon as emotion comes into it, logic and common sense is out the window. Yes. Because you cannot have a rational discussion with emotions riding high. Because right. you can't do it. Right. It's it's almost like trying to think of two or three different things in your brain simultaneously. You can't physically do it. Yep. Same with emotion and rational thought. Doesn't work together. It doesn't coincide. Yeah, when people are sitting and talking about an idea calmly and wanting to figure out, okay, what's the correct conclusion, things can happen. But as soon as someone gets, you know, pounding the table or on their soapbox or whatever, uh, on, on, I guess what you could call a harangue about it, then, you know, you're right. Logic goes out the window, discussion goes out the window, and now we're kind of in a, you know, uh, us them kind of deal. And uh, you're not going to get to uh, to rational conclusions that way. Right. And let me apologize right now because uh, I know we have a lot of Christian listeners. So I didn't mean to get you emotional over something like this. I've had some fabulous discussions with, with Christian folks. I mean, there's so many wonderful, wonderful people out there. I, you know, I can't uh, emphasize that enough. So forgive me. I should have been talking about baseball or something like that. <laughs> Well, and politics is probably an area where that comes in too, because you know we we get discussing an issue, and then pretty soon temperatures start to rise a little bit, and you know, bam, we're in that sort of emotional snowball fight kind of thing. So right, um, there's an there's an interesting example of the wisdom issue in uh, automobile insurance. Uh, you probably know that the demographic group with the highest automobile insurance rates, uh, apart from people who have, you know, bad, bad histories, is single male drivers under the age of 25. And so we could ask, well, gee, why is that group more expensive? Well, they have more accidents. Yeah, but why do they have more accidents? I'll suggest that they have more accidents because generally they fail to take into account the potential consequences of their actions. If, if I'm 16 or I'm 18, many teenagers think they're immortal and they make decisions accordingly. And when somebody zips past them or challenges, challenges them at a stoplight, you know, the emotions get going and it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll race that guy down the street. A 40 year old experienced driver will probably think differently about that, taking into account the possible consequences of a uh, tight situation, residential street, child running out from behind a parked car, you know, all the things that can happen. Uh, and accident statistics demonstrate uh, those results. So to raise wise children, we have to both teach this kind of behavior and we have to model it. So, for example, if, if I had a young child and they wouldn't clean their room, 
Well, I could get angry with them, and I could make all kinds of threats to take away all their privileges and basically use a big stick kind of approach. <laughs> That's kind of the emotional approach. You know, you'll do what I say, otherwise, you know, da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> Boy, that sounds familiar. Yeah. And, <laughs> and what does the child learn from that? Big people can get angry and threaten you, you know? On the other and, hand... And, and sticks hurt. And sticks hurt, <laughs> you know? And, and which one of us wants to get hit with a stick, you know? So that's an approach, but the problem is that as soon as I get away from the stick, you know, I haven't got any rational reason not to go do what I wanted to do. But on the other hand, if I sit down with my child and I say, look, here's the situation. You need to keep your room clean. If you don't, I can't maneuver in it. It tracks dirt throughout the rest of the house. Someone could slip and hurt themselves on your toys and so forth. So you need to keep the room clean. Now, if you don't, then the consequence is that you don't get to go out and play until the room is cleaned. Now, somebody else's consequence might be different. That's just an example. Depending on the age of the child, you know, you might even ask for their input on what the consequence should be. But then, and this is a really important step, you get the child to verbally repeat the consequence back to you. So you ask him or her, so what's the consequence if your room isn't cleaned? And they say, I don't get to go play with my kid, my friends. Okay, good. Now, that's established. When the room isn't cleaned, instead of getting mad or upset, you simply remind them of the consequence. And you stay completely emotionally uninvested in the outcome, and you just let the consequence do its work. Okay, they don't want to clean their room. Fine. That means you don't get to play with your friends. And I just go back to what I'm doing. And they've already bought into it because they agreed to it. And I hold right. them to that agreement. You know. So, interestingly, this has all kinds of uh, applications in other arenas. Um, I work for a consulting company. And uh, one of the parts of my job sometimes is teaching project management. Uh, and one of the things we teach them is about establishing a very clear project scope with their clients. Because one of the things that can happen in a consulting environment is something called scope creep that comes in where you had the project in your mind very well defined and you gave your client a fixed fee quote for that. And then along the way, the client, without necessarily meaning to, starts to expand the parameters of the project. You know, I'd like you guys to come in and, and do a special presentation to the CFO because he'd really like to know about this. And, right. and so we teach them at the very beginning of the project, you go over the scope with the client and you say, does this meet your needs? And you get them, you know, if it does, you get them to say yes. And then you carefully explain, and do you understand that we've carefully scoped this, and if you ask us to do any additional work, there'll be an additional fee. And you make sure they understand, and they say yes. And then when they call you up and ask you to start doing the additional thing, you say, I'd be glad to do that. And, you know, as we discussed, that's outside of scope. So would you like me to quote you a fee in advance or just bill you time and expense or whatever it might be? So it's the the whole thing is very carefully taken care of at the beginning so it doesn't become an issue at the end. 
Now, when you work with children, there are a couple of important things to remember about this. The first is, in my view, you should never invoke a consequence as a surprise after the fact. Right. You know, because that's just arbitrary, and that really can undermine the child's trust in you and the whole approach. So you need to specify consequences before something happens, not after that. The second is that the consequences should always relate to the activity. I mean, if a child doesn't keep his room clean, it doesn't make sense for me to say that he can't have dessert after dinner. Because in his mind, well, what's the relationship <laughs> between dessert and my room, you know? And, and right. in, in that kind of a situation, it just looks like you're trying to hurt the person. And it only goes downhill from there. Right. <laughs> so i got to make the consequence a logical outcome of the child's behavior. And that way, they learn to start thinking in terms of consequences on their own, which is an important step in the growth of their thinking process. Um, so we start to do that, and we start to teach them to do that, and that's a way we both model that and get it inculcated in our lives, and then we also uh, teach that uh, through our children. Interestingly, related to our earlier conversation about authorities, this process takes more work than simply controlling a child through blind authority. You know, I can just tell them, you do this because I say so. And, you know, I can I can power them into it. Uh, it takes more time to think through consequences, but that's a way that they learn and understand and get to a point where they can function independently. So by thinking through the consequences, we force ourselves to engage our intellect, and that can help us avoid, as you said, operating from our emotions. That makes a lot of sense, because I, I remember when I was a child, oftentimes that was the way it was done, is that you'll do it because I say you'll do it. Yep. And at the end of the day, I realized that, you know what, my parents are doing it that way. They had to ex expend the same amount of energy time and time and time again, because I would never get the explanation as to why up front. Yep. And it just seems like an awful lot of uh, wasted energy that could have been, gone, so, been directed somewhere else, like teach me to shave or something like that. Right. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's yep. just, uh, just listening to you talking about this, I'm going, oh, my gosh, that's a, a, a fascinating little ditty about my, you know, my, my life and my experience. Because uh, that, that, what that did then is started prompt, prompting me to ask why. Yep. Which, of course, only got me in deeper trouble. Right. <laughs> and maybe sometimes you got the answer, because I said so, which, right. which is not a logical conclusion that the child... Right, well, that always came forth loud and clear. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm in charge and you're not. Yeah, and and that that is a response to me that just absolutely destroys a person's trust. Like, all right, this person's just being arbitrary with me. And, okay, fine, now I know that they're arbitrary, but then I stop listening to them, and, you know, what what good is that? So, <laughs> Well, Doug, let's hold that thought right there. We need to uh, sneak on out of here for a quick break, and uh, certainly hope that you listeners come on back and catch us on the other side, because I have a feeling it's going to get better from here. So stick around. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. Ever since Walter's World started in Israel some six and a half years ago, 
I closed the program with an appeal to visit your elderly neighbor. Listeners in Europe will be too well aware of the appalling weather conditions at present. Snow, ice and constant temperatures in double digits below zero Celsius. There is also severe weather in other parts of the world. It is therefore extremely important that the elderly are being cared for. They may not be able to venture out to buy their medicine or food. Their heating oil may have run out and they've been known to be afraid to turn on electric heaters in case the bill gets too high and subsequently this will lead to hypothermia and in some cases cause death. I therefore appeal to you to please attend to your elderly neighbor's needs. Remember, you too will be getting old someday. Go now and do it. Thank you. Shalom and welcome back, folks. We appreciate you sticking around for the second half of this Noah Hyde Nation show. It's really been a, a great show already. I mean, Doug's uh, pointing out some some excellent aspects of learning Torah. And as a result, for those of you who are parents, there's a little bit of parenting going on here as well. So this is uh, turning out to be you know, just a classic uh, a teaching session. So I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. So, Doug, uh, come on back in here and let's uh, close this show out because I, I think this whole idea of questioning and beliefs and, and understanding consequences and being proactive has to lead somewhere in terms of us, the Torah student, and being able to question and, and having belief and clarifying the belief and eliminating the belief and then also understanding quant, uh, consequences if we don't study or know that we've studied something and we know the right answer, but we choose not to do it, then what are the consequences? Yep, and we were, uh, Ray, right before the break, talking about how thinking through consequences uh, gets us engaging our intellect, which has some really important benefits, as we'll, we'll see now. Let me start off with a question for the listeners to ponder for a second. Why don't people jump off 50-story buildings in order to experience the thrill of the flight down? And I'm guessing your listeners all know the answer because they know what the consequences are of jumping <laughs> off a 50-foot or 50-story building. Right. Uh, so the next question with that is, well, how do they know what those consequences are? Because they never did it. They've never jumped off a 50-story building uh, in order to experience the thrill of the flight. But they know that, I'll suggest, because it's an idea in their mind. And this is one of the important principles that I've learned from uh, the rabbis that I've studied with, is the only way that we make real behavior change is when an idea is clear to our mind. In other words, the only way we really change is based on ideas. I mean, we can get somebody to do something through threats, but when the threat's removed, the behavior changes. So, for example, if, if uh, somebody has a teenage son and the dad in the family says, now, don't you hold any wild parties in my house? Well, that may work as long as dad is around because the son is afraid of the dad. But when dad and mom go away for the weekend, what does the teenager do? He throws a wild party. Why? 
Because the authority figure that was stopping him is no longer around, and he has no internal reason as to why he or she shouldn't throw a big party. So the only way that's really going to change that behavior is when they have a clear understanding of why it doesn't make sense to throw a wild party. An interesting example of this principle occurred some years ago uh, when there were power outages and brownouts in New York. Uh, there wasn't enough power available to keep the lights on uh, in large sections, uh, as I understand it, of the city. So some areas of the city went dark. And what happened? There were riots and looting. And apparently some people who normally were considered law-abiding citizens were also looting. Now, why would they do that? Well, if a person wants to maintain an image of himself as a law-abiding citizen, and that's the driving force, that I want to look like that to other people, then I, I will carefully curb my behavior so I don't do anything in public that would tarnish that image. But when the lights go out and no one can see, then what is there to stop me in a case like that? Because my only reason for not doing that stuff was I wanted to look good in front of other people. And uh, so it, it's, it's interesting because what you're, you're talking about rings true for character. I mean, what will you do when the decision is made in the dark or when the decision is made behind closed doors? Are you able to make the right decision and do the right thing? Yes, absolutely. And, and do you have then the knowledge of why it is that you're doing uh, or not doing that particular thing? In, in the case of our looter, the authority, in this case, which for him is the other people, they can't see him because right. there's there's no light. And that's the only reason that he has to do that. So we have to actually see the consequences of our behavior, not just operate based on some authority. We need to show our own self, our own emotions, the harm of acting in a certain way, uh, the harm that we're actually doing to ourselves. And actions are the measuring stick of how real the ideas are to us. So you, you brought up a beautiful case. Let's consider this. If you had the opportunity to steal $10 million or make it $50 million or a billion or whatever number is really big uh, for you, and it was a certainty that no one would ever find out, the question is, would you do it? Now, Someone might answer, no, because God told me that I shouldn't steal, and that's part of the, the seven Noahide laws and, and the system we live under. Okay, I, I accept that. But just for the sake of this discussion, let's take the creator out of the equation for a minute, because he's an authority figure. Is there any other reason why I might choose not to steal in that particular situation, where it's a certainty that I will not be found out? Well, I'm going to I'm going to throw a quick one out, quick answer here is because it's inside you're going to, a good person is going to feel guilt. I, I mean, for me, it's hard for me to even conceive of myself even thinking of it, let alone actually doing it because in doing it, I would die of the guilt. And I don't know where exactly where guilt comes from, but 
uh, I would feel horrible that I would be so brazen. You know, who am I to steal anything from anybody? Gosh, it just doesn't doesn't make sense. I, I can't conceive of it. So that's what I'm going with. <laughs> well, uh, that's that's a good point. And you know, in fact, if we have the time, either in this show or if uh, we have the opportunity to do a future one, one of the topics I'd like to get into is guilt uh, and what the real purpose of that is and how we how we deal with it. Okay, stirring the pot. So, I like it. Yep. <laughs> so in this case, let me walk through kind of what happens around the stealing of the money. Let's suppose that I steal the money and I'm successful. Nobody finds out. So what actually happens to me in that process? What have I learned? Well, I've learned that I can bend reality. I can cheat the rules of life. I don't have to work within the same laws and rules as everybody else. You know, I'm special. And that now makes me think that life works differently than it actually does. Because I've begun to convince myself that I don't have to follow reality. I can get something from somebody else without having to earn it uh, and take something that belongs to somebody else uh, without their permission. So after having successfully stolen whatever it is I stole, I'm now thinking, hey, you know, this works pretty good. So having been successful once, I'll try it again, maybe with slightly bigger stakes. And if I'm successful then, I'll try it again with even bigger stakes. And this process goes on and on and on until I am, have destroyed my ability to think clearly. I'm no longer able to look at reality and see what's the real situation my desire, my emotional desire to get something has clouded my vision of reality so much that I am almost certainly going to start making mistakes. And this is a classic pattern that can ultimately lead uh, to what we call megalomania. Uh, well, uh, the sages teach this. They teach that when you first, let's call it commit a sin, whatever it might be, when you do it the first time, there can be tremendous guilt or bad feelings, what have you, but you got away with it. Right. So it makes it easier, a little bit easier to go out and do it the second time. And that second time you do it, you may feel a little guilt and feel a little bad, but it's not going to be nearly what it was the first time. Then you get to the third time, and it, it dissipates even more so, so that when you are actually willing to do it a fourth time, you no longer have guilt. You don't feel it. The sages teach it takes three times, and at fourth time, you you no longer feel the guilt of of what you have done as being wrong. I guess that it might be where the saying "what you tolerate today, you'll embrace tomorrow" comes from. I I, I don't know. <laughs> that's a, that's a good point, and a really classic example of that in our uh, recent history would be Adolf Hitler. Yes. Uh, I mean, he made some clever moves early on, albeit he was very evil in that, but uh, they were they were clever moves, and he managed to take over power and, and work people the right way and so forth. But the more he became successful at that, the more unrealistically confident he became, and he became confident that he was invincible. And that started him making decisions that were completely unrealistic and that helped to bring about 
his demise and Germany's demise in the Second World War. So there's a process that whereby uh, doing these kinds of things actually affects us. And apart from you know whether Hashem is going to uh, to to punish us for that, I would say that God created uh, a system so that we automatically get the punishment of destroying our own ability to think clearly, which is going to cause us to make mistakes in life, and eventually, uh, you know, we're going to be found out. And you know, if I start stealing a piece of candy and I get away with it and I get confident, and then it's a pack of gum, and after that, then it's a you know, a radio, and then pretty soon it's a car, and then pretty soon it's a bank, and pretty soon I'm, you know, an armed robber and so forth. I, I'm going to get more and more confident in my ability to cheat reality, and then the fall I'm going to have is going to be very, very big. Right. So I've I've basically kind of poisoned my own mind in that process by wrecking my own ability to look at, at uh, uh, reality in a rational way. Uh, and, and it's interesting to note that this appears to be a pretty significant fail-safe device that God built into the civilizations of mankind <laughs> because it seems to cause societies over time to self-correct because the people who do terrible things and evil things and operate not in accordance with reality ultimately make mistakes and fall and get replaced by other people. Uh, so uh, it's it's just kind of interesting to look at that at the fifty thousand foot level, but it definitely affects us on a on a day to day basis. Well, you know, now you you brought Hashem back into the uh, equation here. I'm I'm kind of thinking of a, a circumstance, uh, or I should say, a, a group of people that I've actually seen interviewed, and I've even talked to a few of them myself. In fact, lately. They've been coming out with things on buses, some you know, billboard kinds of things that says atheists can do things good without God. And you know, I thought about that and I said, okay, he probably is is right, but only to a degree, because then I started thinking, where did he, where did this atheist or group of atheists determine what is right and what is wrong? That, that line had to be drawn from somewhere. A, a moral code had to be brought forth earlier in their life in order for them to determine what's good and what's bad. Yep. R- right? Yes. A- so, absolutely. So these atheists, they, they really plague me sometimes, but that time it really got to me that they have this religion, we'll call it, of non-belief in God and that they can be good too, but that had to have evolved from somewhere. That moral code that they are following and that they're talking about had to emanate from somewhere, and I can only believe that it was from God. Well, it, unless you, you know really something I don't. Point. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, you raise a really good point, Ray, because uh, a, an atheist could simply hold that I should do everything in my power to get all the pleasure that I can in life, regardless of anybody else, and. He could say, you know, and, and since I hold that there is no creator and there is no then code of civil behavior, then as long as I can outsmart everybody, uh, I should be able to do that. So for them to come along and say, oh, no, I can do a good thing, you're absolutely right. What is the measurement of good? And you have to have a framework 
uh, in order to be able to do that. Right. Uh, yeah, I didn't mean to get you off track there, but boy, that just hit me all of a sudden. Like, wait a minute. Yeah, it's a very good point. Interestingly, too, uh, I guess to to stay on that off track for a second, mm-hmm. uh, it, it strikes me that the atheist is in a really difficult rational position because if we if we take that you have a choice of being being an agnostic or an atheist, and my understanding of the definitions there is that uh, with regard to a creator, an atheist would say there is no creator. An agnostic would say I don't know. And the I don't know position I, I can understand and accept. Right. Okay. And and okay that means I need to make more inquiry and so we dig in and try to find out. But the atheist is holding there is no God. Now that is a really difficult position to prove. That to prove the non-existence of something is very, very hard. If I were to say to you, well, there are three-horned unicorns that roam the earth, uh, but uh, uh, let's see, uh, there are three-horned unicorns that, uh, uh, now I'm getting my, my point backwards here, uh, that don't roam the earth. Uh, it's very difficult to prove unless you can go back and look at every square inch of earth simultaneously at the same moment uh, and otherwise prove that that, uh, you know, that that does not exist. Um, in a similar kind of way, to prove the non-existence of a... Um, you know, of an entity that created the earth, uh, you could speculate, well, maybe there wasn't one, but to prove the non-existence one is virtually impossible. Uh, it was one of my rabbinic mentors raised this idea once, uh, that someone could say that trees have, uh, have a separate life, and they raise kids and have families and have communities and they talk to each other and they walk around. It's just that every time you turn and look at them, they quickly snap back into the position they were before you see it. <laughs> and, and so now prove to me that's not true. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I mean, fundamentally we wouldn't accept that because we have no evidence for it, but trying to prove the non-existence of something is a very difficult position. Uh, so I, I don't know how they reached that conclusion, uh, but I find the, the, uh, the agnostic position one that I can much more rationally see someone holding than the atheist position. Yeah, I never really thought about it that deeply as far as the atheist, but that's a, you know, an interesting question to ponder is how did they, how did they get there? Do they even think that there is no God, or is that is it just their opinion? I mean, what kind of research could you have done to convince yourself there is no God? How do right. you get there? I, you know, my mind won't, I can't wrap it around how they got there. It just doesn't right. make sense to me. I, I have a thought, and an atheist would have to comment to me as to whether this is accurate, but my sense from listening to some comments from folks is, that their experience of religions in the world is so negative, and they have seen so much, uh, so many negative acts come out of religions 
that they reject the religions and then what's behind them, kind of in one fell swoop. Okay, in other words, if there was a God, he wouldn't allow this stuff to happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that okay. kind of an argument, which, uh, I mean, I understand where they get the the concept, uh, but the idea, well, if there's a God, he wouldn't allow this or that. That is a very interesting argument we could go into rationally and, and discuss, <laughs> you know, why certain things happen on the planet. That comes up, too, when you hear of great tragedies and, you know, where multiple people die and so forth. It's like, how could God allow such a thing to happen? Well, there's a system there that we would have to get into and, and understand. Um, so, anyway, uh, we're, we moved off a little bit, but I thought uh, your, your point about atheists was an interesting one. And we're kind of you know running up against the top of the hour, so if maybe we can kind of uh, condense this down and and come to a conclusion, we've got uh, you know a few minutes left here. So because I definitely want to have you back, let's do this again next week. <laughs> That'd be great. And you know, just to kind of wrap this up, since we're talking so much uh, about ideas and knowing that they're correct, uh, we could logically answer, ask the question: Well, how do I know an idea is correct? How am I supposed to figure that out? And I, I will submit that the only real test for truth is questions. Uh, that we have to ask every question we can think of around a particular area, and if we can get a result that answers every question, then we have the truth as far as we can deem it at that moment. And those truthful ideas can help us uh, supersede the emotions that tend to cloud our ability to see reality. Uh, I submit that probably most of us as children sometime or other went to bed at night thinking there were monsters under the bed. Uh, and it's interesting to know... Well, you mean that there aren't? <laughs> Touche. It's, it's interesting to notice the monsters are never in bed with you. They exist only where we can't see, right. which is also an interesting explanation as to why fears come out at night. Right, and, But when our parents come in and turn on the light or we turn on the light and the light allows us to see reality, the monsters disappear. And so in that same way, a true idea can shine like a light on reality and help us to recognize the, the cloudiness that our emotions were bringing to the situation and give us clarity to, to see through that. Well, that's uh, very interesting. In fact, that's going to take us right into the, the next show, I think. But, folks, unfortunately, there's just never enough time in this hour. It, it goes really quick, and we do appreciate you being with us uh, today. If you do have any questions or comments, you know, anything that I or Doug have said, uh, please feel free to you know let us know. Send them along to us by email at uh, noahide at israelnationalradio.com. And when they come on in here, if they're for Doug, I'll get them off to him, and uh, maybe he can come back on the air and answer some of those questions. And I'm also particularly interested, if we do have any atheists listening, please send us an email. Let us know how you got to where you got to, and possibly if there aren't any atheists, if there's any people here who know atheists, Maybe you could shoot us an email if you've had any kind of discussion with them because maybe they've let the cat out of the bag as to how they got to be an atheist. So, folks, listen, thanks again for being with us. We're going to duck on out of here real quick. And until we see you again next week, my friend, Shavuoto, have a wonderful week.
heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, 